0: Well, I want to begin by reminding you, brothers and sisters, what one of the patriarchs of the Christian life that we are called to live stated about the Christian experience. This patriarch is Peter, the apostle, and he says that the Christian life is a life that is to be described as one who is a stranger and a sojourner, Those who believe in Christ and find themselves in some respects scattered among the nations, either because God has called them to service in some location that was not their original home, or again, somewhat in keeping with the motif of being a pilgrim or a stranger, then they're not exactly rooted, they're more scattered among the nations and serving God's kingdom in that capacity. Now, I do think that is a very important text with which to begin and to reintroduce the series of studies that God has us engaged in. It is a really good segue from a New Testament perspective. And when we draw into the New Testament teaching that we have just heard out of 1 Peter, we remember that the Apostle Paul tells us that there are examples that have already been given to us that serve as admonitions to our lives. They stand as lessons that have a sobering message to them. So they are lessons, but they may entail a certain set of instructions and a certain calling that um, is designed to call upon us to be a more serious people. I'm saying that because... He says that these examples that are available in the Old Testament are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages are come. And I believe that one of the examples that is available to us in the Old Testament to help us to come to terms with this characteristic of the Christian calling and to measure ourselves by and to see whether or not we are living up to what the apostolic church taught and in many cases embraced. One example is the example of Joseph. And that will not be new to those of you who have already been a part of these studies because these studies are entitled Joining Joseph's Journey. And we are presently engaged in setting out or establishing One might even use the imagery of framing the picture of Joseph's life. And we've sought to construct this frame one side at a time, cutting all of our angles very carefully and gluing the pieces together and all the rest of it. So we are spending a bit of time in establishing the framework within which Joseph's life is presented to us. Because it is my view that in order to understand Joseph's life well, you have to understand the framework that he is introduced into. I think that is very central, very key, very important. And indeed, much of the admonition that Joseph's life makes available to us is learned from appreciating that framework that precedes Joseph, into which his life emerges and so if you're following what i'm saying i could remind you in that we know from revelation chapter 3 if nowhere else that the possibility of the christian church a christian church or christian at large the possibility of a laodicean disposition working its way in, and even establishing itself, is very real. It's always a concern, brothers and sisters. And what we're seeing in the life of Joseph as we're building this frame is what we're calling patriarchal Laodiceanism. And Joseph, as we will see increasingly, is the son that changes everything. And so perhaps the call to Joseph's journey can speak to our hearts along those lines. Perhaps it can speak to our hearts as being available to God, listening to the call of God, having the dream and the vision reinvigorated in order to work within the framework of what we are introduced into And to do something about whatever level of insipid Laodiceanism may be characterizing, as it were, the state of affairs some generations after the original patriarchs were called to the service of Jesus Christ. So I hope that you can once again see the relevance of this sort of thinking. We can think in terms of the apostles as being the patriarchs, in some sense being the Abrahams, the Isaacs, and the Jacobs, if you will, that God gave a dream, a vision, a calling, a covenant to. And the question before us is, are his children, are the grandchildren, are the great-great-grandchildren, is the progenitory of the patriarchs living true to the original calling? Now I'll remind you just briefly as we press forward in these studies of some of the salient things that are necessary to have in your mind when you think about the life of Joseph. While it is the case, as I have stated, that Joseph is introduced to the reader in the 37th chapter in a very interesting way, it is nonetheless also true that Joseph is mentioned three previous times in a somewhat incidental manner in the book of Genesis. We have, naturally, his birth mentioned. We have what I'm calling Joseph's bow mentioned, when Joseph is among the number of the entourage that meets up with Esau whenever Jacob is leaving Padamaran and moving his way back uh, to Bethel or to the land of Canaan. And Joseph is in the hinder a section of those that were retained um, after so many of Jacob's tribe precedes him because Joseph was the son, of course, of Rachel, his favorite wife, and Joseph was his firstborn in that context. We also have Joseph mentioned to us in what we're calling the booking, just to keep with the bees. And effectively what we are referring to there is the, the genealogy that is presented to us In Genesis 35 and you'll remember with me that the occasion for the mentioning of the children of Jacob is number one the death of or maybe I should state it differently is number one the birth of Benjamin and the death of Rachel uh, at the same time Joseph is mentioned in that context in Genesis 35 and the reason why once again here in these studies I make reference of that is because I just want to remind you that even before we get to Genesis 37, when Joseph's name is used in a certain context, there are these hints of what his life is ultimately going to uh, mean in the patriarchal story. Because what we learn there is that following the death of Rachel, Jacob naturally moves into a disposition of mourning. Now, I say naturally, and I suppose that's fair enough, meaning there's nothing, of course, improper about mourning as such. But you may remember that there is a call upon this man's life, whether or not his wife passes away, which I recognize may sound a little extreme in our modern context. But again, this is what it is to understand the dream and understand the vision and understand the calling that is upon all of our lives. There may be various things that occur in your family, but you are still called to preach the gospel and to bring God's kingdom forward and all the blessing and the richness and the joy of who Jesus is. You're still called to represent God's kingdom. And so what we do find is that Jacob goes into uh, evidently some disposition of mourning, And we are told, and we've already mentioned this in previous studies, but in the interest of any who may be hearing these messages now that this particular segment is being recorded, I just want to make it clear that in Genesis 35, in this context of Rachel's death, in verse 21, we read, And Israel journeyed, Israel is Jacob, of course, But it's very interesting, as I've mentioned before, that though Jacob's name is used directly in the previous verse, verse 20, yet now, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Israel is used to designate Jacob as if we are learning that there's something of a paradigm happening here, something of a pattern that is emerging, that Israel as a nation will, to some extent, unfortunately replicate and so what we learn is that Israel journeyed and he spread his tent beyond the tower of Edar. Well, all of that is in keeping with what the calling is. They're called to be in a sort of, uh, you know, pilgrim type mode. They're called to be strangers scattered throughout Canaan territory until, until God calls them to live otherwise. And um, and so Jacob is journeying. But then in the second, the 22nd verse We read, and it came to pass when Israel dwelt. Now, it's not as obvious in the English translation as it is in the Hebrew. I'm reading out of the King James Version. But the Hebrew behind this word, this verb, is sakhan. And it means to settle. It can have the connotation of enthroned. That's quite interesting. It is the idea that maybe Jacob's will is replacing the will of God. That Jacob's will is feeling as if it has a right to sort of nurse itself, if you will. In the death of his beloved wife, maybe the calling can legitimately be put on the back burner to some extent. And Jacob can kind of settle down because that is what is possible with this Hebrew word and it's quite interesting and here's the point and these ideas will be developed much more fully as we move into subsequent studies but some of these hints and foreshadowings are useful to see now this is the way indeed your bible is written and so in some sense ex- exegetically we are in keeping with the way the bible itself presents the story that is to say we're giving you some foreshadowing of the lessons that get more richly developed as the story goes on. Now, what am I referring to? What I'm referring to is the fact that we are told, listen to the language of verse 22, and it came to pass, when Israel dwelt or settled or can even be as strong as enthroned himself in that land that Reuben went and lay with Billah his father's concubine. It came to pass when Jacob did this, then Reuben did that. And if we're reading this approximately accurately, and I would suggest to you that we are, because I would suggest to you that biblically, theologically, if I use the proper uh, diction in making that remark, I would argue to you that in the discipline of biblical theology, as we develop the emerging picture, we will see consistency with the thing that I'm arguing at the moment. And I'm saying you should see a correlation between this. The father is settling down in terms of his, um, you know, his version of the patriarchal calling. He has uh, something that's been granted onto him, he has some blessing, he has some position and so on, but he's not moving forward. He's starting to park a little bit, he's starting to settle in a little bit, he's starting to normalize his experience in a way that is at least slightly illegitimate, though of course Could be argued and no one would not have sympathy for Jacob at this moment. It's not a matter of not having sympathy. It's not a matter of being hard-nosed about it. It's not a matter of, you know, grabbing Jacob, you know, by the collar and pulling him into service. But nonetheless, I believe there's an available lesson here. The father settles down in his calling. The father manifests at least the possibility of a little bit of Laodiceanism into his own life, dear brothers and sisters, and the son picks up on that almost by osmosis, dear brethren. Do you understand with me that if it is the case, as we all recognize, that evil communications corrupt good manners, that is to say, there's a certain challenge to our own lives, let alone the raising of our children, giving the culture within which we find ourselves, and who among us would not agree with that analysis? Who among us would not be able to say with legitimacy to their own hearts and their minds and make the case that the raising of our children, the progress of our own lives is in some sense relevant to the culture that surrounds us. If Lot could be vexed with the filthy communication of the Sodomites, then even if you don't go to Sodom yourself, it is possible as we're seeing Sodom can come to you. And as a result, your life to some extent could also be vexed. You have to wash one another's feet on a regular basis. Now, my brothers and sisters, let... Bring, let's bring this thought home let's think about jacob let's think about Reuben are you listening with me if it is the case as we would all agree as we argue at length so to speak and legitimately that the culture that is around us the influences that are outside of us have a direct bearing upon the project that we are seeking uh, to be successful in and in some senses like Paul of old on the ship of old when others around you don't listen to the good counsel that we would give to the world, that the church is seeking to shine out to the world, when in spite of that your fellow citizens just choose wickedness and the nature of the spiritual climate goes down, that it becomes all the more difficult then for us to live our own lives in some senses, unless you're deeply committed and certainly can have effect on new believers or on your children. Then, my brothers and sisters, is it not the case that the same principle holds true within our own family, within our own church? That none of us lives on to himself, none of us dies onto himself. All of us are within a context, and we need to be keepers of one another. We need to realize that our behavior that our standards or lack of standards, the disposition with which we manifest ourselves, if we manifest disrespect within the family of God, if we manifest disrespect in the church of God, then you put in the air the virus. This is a place where we really should put a hand over our mouth in a form of masking. We put into the air and then Reuben goes astray. In this case, it was Jacob himself who left off being on point with God's call and Reuben lays with Billah. Now, is Reuben old enough to be accountable for his behavior? Of course he is. But that's hardly to do justice to the entire text and indeed to all that God has set before us for us to understand. Is that not right, brothers and sisters? Are we not called to love one another and does not love, look upon the well-being of each other and does not seek its own, but seeks the betterment of the other? Amen. It most certainly does. When we do come to Genesis 37, let's remind ourselves of this. This remarkable way in which Jacob emerges, excuse me, in which Joseph emerges, it is in the Toledah section of Jacob which effectively in the way the book of Genesis works it is as if we are now learning what place does Jacob play in the plan of God and when you get to ver- when you get to Genesis 37 and you start with verse 1 you read and Jacob dwelt and the Hebrew is yasah it means note this well it means to sit down or to remain sitting. We will be making note of a number of verbs as we move through this study, in this framing out of the uh, context into which Joseph's picture emerges. Um, So note the verbs. Here the verb is, Jacob sat down, remained sitting, in the land wherein his father Isaac was a stranger, Magor, a cognate of sojourner, which is used of Abraham in another location we'll see in due time. So where Isaac was a sojourner and a mover and a pilgrim, we are told that Jacob began to sit down. That is incredibly relevant in the land of Canaan. Verse 2. Verse 2, we get to the Toledah section. These are the generations of Jacob. This is the Toledah of Jacob. This is the story of Jacob. And the first thing we hear is Joseph. Joseph was 17 years old. Now, my brothers and sisters, as you pay attention to the way Genesis works, what you'll discover is we are told this is the generation of Jacob, and then Joseph's life just takes off. and we, know, we basically don't get back to Jacob in any central fashion until the patriarchal prophetic blessings upon the twelve. And there are very interesting things that occur there that we will get to in due time. But um, immediately we're introduced to Joseph. And I will further emphasize the uniqueness of this fact by noting that Joseph isn't the firstborn. Joseph is not the firstborn of Jacob. So, I mean, I know you know that, but just think about that. Why would Joseph be mentioned in this, uh, you know, almost isolated way, or however you want to put it, with this kind of focus, he alone? Well, it's because of the way that Joseph's life is set before us. It's the nature of the role that Joseph plays. And I do suggest to you that joining Joseph's journey, anyone who is genuinely joining Joseph's journey must first come to an appreciation that He is the Son that changes everything in a context of patriarchal Laodiceanism. That is to say, they're the patriarchs for us, of course, and in the Old Testament, but I'm saying that the generations after Abraham were fighting against this temptation to settle down and not forward the purposes of God. I hope that this is a clarion calling to all of, all of our lives. Now, moving forward in our studies, that of course was Genesis 37. And you know from reading Joseph's life, and we will witness together that we have the longest section of the ten Toledo sections that comprise the book of Genesis. It'll go all the way to the 50th chapter. It's all about Joseph, essentially. I mean, I know we have these exceptions in chapter 39, whatever we'll get, but it's all relevant to Joseph, as you'll see. It's all relevant to Joseph. It's all contrast, comparison. It's all relevant to Joseph. But at the risk of being redundant, I'll say yet again, what we're doing now, what we are about to engage in in earnest is setting forth the framework That Joseph emerges into? What was the state of affairs that was in existence that Joseph emerges into? In order to set this forth, we go back 270 years from Genesis 37. From whatever is occurring in Genesis 37, Joseph is 17 years old at that time in Genesis 37. We're going back 270 years, approximately 600 miles northeast from Hebron to Haran. And this brings us to Genesis 11. I want to just look at some verses here, beginning with verse 27. And I want you to notice some very interesting patterns that begin to sort of establish themselves. Now these are the generations of Tira. Now where have you heard that before? Well, if you were reading, you know, consecutively, that is to say, if you're reading from Genesis 1 all the way to Genesis 37, then of course you would have come to Genesis 11 first, obviously, right? But the way that we've brought this to your attention is, you know where you heard this before, you just heard me read it in Genesis 37. Now these are the generations of Jacob. And then what do you get right after that? Joseph. And it's all about the life of Joseph. It's not just like, he bore Joseph, and then other things, and then we talk about his life, as we'll see, for example, in the Toledo section of Esau, it's all about Esau. The whole chapter is all about Esau and his doings and certainly his progenitory, but it's all about the life of Esau. Not so in Genesis 37. And also, interestingly, not so here in Genesis 11. These are the generations of Tirah. But then it's dropped off immediately on Abram, whom you know as Abraham. Terah begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran begot Lot. It's almost as if it is being said, if you want to put it in this sort of um, really reductionist fashion, the value of Terah is that he was the father of Abram. Now I understand that's a bit... You know, that's a bit aggressive, you might say, something to that effect. But in terms of getting across to our minds, you know, in introducing you into how to think about this, that may help you. Because, brothers and sisters, basically, Tira brings us to the 10th generation from the flood, approximately 350 years from Noah, and he brings us to Abram, the 10th generation. And as you know with me, what can we say about Abram? I don't have a problem in particular with people answering questions like that. I'm not suggesting that it's the normal thing to do, and I'm not looking for an answer presently. But I wanted to hang in the air for a moment. I hope to God this engages your heart. I ask you, what can we say about Abram? Abraham is supposed to be the son that changes everything. And indeed, he is. Abram is the son that changes everything. And one of the things you'll see, just so you're tracking with me, is one of the things that will happen with Abram is he's separated from his brethren. Another thing that happens with Abram is he is brought, as it were, into a starry-eyed vision. A starry-eyed dream. God says that your children will be like the numbers of the stars. God directs his attention up to the stars. There's another thing that's true about Abraham is that all the nations are supposed to be blessed from Abraham more, through Abraham. More of that in a moment. But you may recall with me the, you know, the sort of echoes that uh, vibrate off of Joseph's life. As we saw, and as we will continue to see, that Joseph in chapter 37 is also the one, you know, who, once the father is mentioned, the story is dropped off onto him because now he is called to be the son that changes everything. He also is given a starry-eyed vision. He begins to run with fresh zeal, yes, indeed, somewhat, Youthful, but he runs with his dream. And someday, Lord willing, we'll be talking about this more fully. But Joseph is the one with a youthful zeal that runs with his dream. You see with me, brothers and sisters, that, that, that the vision is being renewed in the life of Joseph. The vision that goes all the way back 270 years, almost as long as was the distance between Noah and Abraham itself. Almost as long as the time between between the post-Diluvian world and what it took to get to Abram, now we are in some sense, as you will see with me, having to restart the whole thing again. Oh, brothers and sisters, I share with you that that is quite an admonitional thought. Because That should not be the case. After so long a time, you should not have to reteach the patriarchs the first principles of Yahwehism. But you have to reteach them again because Laodiceanism has begun to creep into the church's experience. Because they began to park and they began to locate within the world. They began to adopt some of the practices in the world. And I could give you all sorts of examples and we will do this over time. It's such a rich story that is tempting to, you know, sort of dip into it. But we have to stick with cutting our frame pieces and gluing them together and nailing them. Or we'll never create the frame. We'll just keep talking you about the picture because it's such a visage to behold. But we must have this frame so that it's not just myself, as it were, or Perhaps others that already see this, that appreciate the richness of this story. But you see the foreshadowings are necessary so that they don't get lost on you. So that you can begin to see that something's happening here that is very profound. And God is speaking to our lives, brothers and sisters. He's saying to us, where are you? In line, Where are you with reference to the original calling that was once for all delivered over to the saints? Do you even understand it? Are you awake to it? Are you invigorated with it? Or are you in some senses parked, maybe even parked in your seat? as it were, today, only marginally taking in this incorruptible Word, which is able to save your soul, brothers and sisters. What are we doing with this Word throughout the week? Are we shining it forth? Are we sharing it forth? Are we trying to set up God's church as men and women through prayer and participation, brothers and sisters? This is the question to God's people, no matter where they are. And if you identify with God's people, then it's the question to you today. It doesn't matter if there's 12. It doesn't matter if there's 20. It doesn't matter if there's five. The question is, what are the brothers? What are the confessing sisters doing? What is their behavior and their disposition toward the brothers and the sisters that maybe have a dream and have a vision? And whether or not they run with it with a little bit of youthful zeal here and there, what is their attitude and their disposition? In what way do they support what God has given years and years ago from the beginning? beginning the the message as John says this is the message that we have had from the beginning you might remember in Woburn when we first began to meet there we had a series of teachings out of first John about that very theme but I won't digress at this time into further statements about that sort of thing let me just continue to read in Genesis chapter 11 and Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity, that is to say, in Ur of the Chaldee. and Abraham and Nahor took them wives. The name of Abraham's wife was Sarai. She is the daughter of Tira, by a different mother than 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 mothered, as it were. Or I should say, conceived uh, Abram. So she is his half-sister, as you know. And the name of Nahor's wife is Milcah, who happens to be the daughter of Haran, who is the father of Milcah. So this is Nahor's niece that he marries. And he is also the father of Iscah. That is to say that Haran is the father of Iscah, Milcah, and Lot. But he died in the land of his nativity. He died Ur of the Chaldea. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his son's son, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, which of course is his daughter. We've mentioned something about this in the past. I won't digress into it, but it's an interesting observation. That when a man leaves his father and mother, then the primary relational definition of that man's life and the woman's life is the wife of or the, or the husband of that person. So therefore, Sarai becomes noted as Terah's daughter-in-law. His son Abram's wife. And they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldee. Now listen to this. To go into the land of Canaan. Don't ever forget that. Mark it down, highlight it, whatever you want to do. When you read this text, to go into the land of Canaan, and they came onto Haran. Now, I would say to you, first of all, does anybody know for sure whether or not you need to go through Haran in order to get to Canaan? In other words, what I'm saying is, We learn that they leave Ur of the Chaldee. I mean, I know how these things work on the map. I'm just saying I'm not going to be so presumptuous. I mean, maybe there's a better scholar than I. Obviously, there are numerous better scholars than I. But I'm saying someone who knows this material, you know, through Near Eastern studies or something, and uh, or Middle Eastern studies, I should say, and they know what the old trade routes were, and you don't have to go through Iran. In fact, it's kind of like out of the way. What I'm saying is this. I'm stirring up your thinking, and I'm saying that they came to Iran. And then we're told, and this is critical, and dwelt, yasab. It's the same word that is used of Jacob in Genesis 37, that he dwelt where Isaac sojourned. Are you hearing it? Are you hearing the slowing down in the movement? The change of how you view yourself in the land to which you are called, the place you're pilgriming in, the place you're scattered out like so much seed and you're supposed to grow and spread your roots or whatever you want to use as a metaphor in order to, you know, be the planting of the Lord. You know what I'm saying? We're told that they came to Iran and they sat down. It's a relatively strident way of Translating the Hebrew, it's perfectly legitimate, incidentally. Don't, don't think I'm saying it's not legitimate. It's exactly what you'll see in the lexicon. Sat down. It's exactly what you're going to find. I'm not making these things up. But I'm saying, do you have to say sat down? Do you have, The Hebrew is very image-driven. It's very um, flexible, if you will. Therefore, by the way, not to give you a Hebrew uh, lesson, but therefore, context drives connotation. And so one must be very attentive to context, and I would argue in a spiritual way, not to be like um, mystical, but I think that uh, one has to have a sensitivity spiritually to the text. The spirit guides us into all truth, not just brains that are noodling on it. And I'm saying when you read this context, you read how the story is developing, I think it is accurate to read it in this way, and they sat down in Haran and then we're told in the days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran now if you would continue reading with me into the 12th chapter of Genesis Abram is now 74 we're going to hear in a moment that he's 75 the assumption is as some of these early verses in this chapter occur about a year before we get to some later statements. But Abram is around 74 years old. And he's in Haran. Naturally, his father is dead. He's married to Sarai. He married her when he was 48 years old, and she was 38 years old. And now he is 74. And this is what we read. Now the Lord in your King James Bible, I know it says had said. That is either imperfect or pluperfect. You know, you can play around with, I'm not saying you can play around with grammar, like indefinitely, but if you understand, especially translating out of Greek, you don't you don't necessarily have to go into, say, for example, the imperfect. It can be aorist, it can sound like an imperfect, but we won't get into all of that. What I'm saying is, your King James translation already has had said, I will alert you to the fact that in the 3rd century Septuagint translation of this statement, the eris for said is used, the eris tense of apon, the third person singular eris, pen, is used. That is to say, these Jewish scholars... And we won't get in again to digressing into discussion about the Septuagint. Let's just leave it simple. They, they were certainly Jewish scholars. No, no doubt about that. These Jewish scholars, sensitive to the text at some level, knew that you had to translate the Hebrew this way. Are you following what I'm stating? Because the Greek is more definite than the Hebrew. It's more like, like you can't move too far. You know what I mean? And, um, and it's, it's, it's very definite. That the Lord had said. So, in other words, there was something that God, we need to know, had already said. The question, then, let's just say it. We're not looking for any problems. But the question already all always is, isn't it, sister? When the Lord has already said something, or anybody else, but let's stay with the Lord. When the Lord has already said something, the question is: is it being obeyed? That's a really serious question, isn't it? Does anybody agree with me? Is it being obeyed? The Lord had said unto Abram, get you out of your country. That is to say, out of the territory that you call home, the actual geographical location, get out. Get out from your kindred. Get out from your multi-generational family structure. Leave your family. Basic. and from your father's house i would argue to some extent that is saying leave the inheritance behind leave your father's house not just the physical house or whatever that might have looked like but the idea is that when you leave the family you leave the territory you're leaving the prospects of your inheritance get out onto a land that I will show you. In other words, you don't even know where I'm sending you. Do you recall the language of Hebrews 11? Verse 8, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should afterward inhe- receive as an inheritance, some new location for a new inheritance, not fixated on the temporal associations, the temporal place of dwelling, or the temporal prospects of an inheritance. But God says, break yourself away from all of those things. Adopt the disposition and the practice of a pilgrim and a stranger. Get out and come into my program. Come into my calling. You are going to be a blessing to all the nations. What a high calling. Oh, brothers and sisters, but what a mark to press toward as we will see. I mean, this is what God is speaking to us about. This is what God is speaking to us about, dear friends. He went out obeying. That is to say, in Hebrews 11, when God called him to an inheritance that he should afterward receive, the Bible tells us he obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whither he went. He, by faith, sojourned, In the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Oh dear brothers and sisters, this is all so very rich. Because if you're hearing these ideas... You're hearing the sojourning. You're hearing the strange land. You're hearing the same sort of descriptive language that is applied to ourselves as believers. Do you understand that Hebrews 11 is calling us to walk by faith in this way? And we're told that it takes obedience. And we will be seeing, of course, in Genesis 12, that for whatever reasons, dear brothers and sisters, for whatever reasons we understand that we have to um, moderate what the statement that Abraham obeyed entails. That is to say, we have to get into some of the details of what that actually looks like. Because the Bible tells us in Genesis 12 that God had said, evidently to Abram, maybe to Tirah, and passed down as Fathers teach children. But the Lord had said, get out of your country. Get out of your family associations. Leave behind your inheritance. And he didn't say go to Haran. He said go to a land. Remember back in in Genesis chapter 11, it says they left Ur of Chaldee to go to the land of Canaan. But they parked at Haran. Oh, brothers and sisters. So the idea that Abram obeyed ultimately means God finally got a a hold of his heart. Has God gotten a hold of your heart today? Is God getting a hold of our hearts? Is He really? Are you feeling that calling in you? Is it being renewed and and defined that, that God wants you, as I say, on the move Now, that doesn't mean that you're literally necessarily have to move as a missionary to some other location. It might mean that. It doesn't necessarily mean that you should be on the streets witnessing tomorrow, although it can mean that. But are you on the move? Are you moving out of the associations and the territory and the identifications that might describe you now. Do you understand what I'm saying? You know, we can enlarge upon these things in their proper context or the proper timing. But, you know, there's there's um, temptations of covetousness. There's temptations of security for Abram to stay in Ur of the Chaldee where his family is and where the inheritance is and to leave that all behind because God has called you. You see what I'm saying? Maybe, I mean, at a minimum, we should be walking away from sin, brothers and sisters. We should be leaving a sinful lifestyle. We should be leaving sinful language. We should be leaving a, a sinful lack of girding up our loins and being about our father's business, brothers and sisters. But even beyond, leaving actual sins. We should leave behind the things that are not commensurate with the calling that God has put on our lives. You know, I'm not so much saying to you at this moment, but when are God's people going to do more than just come and go to church? When are they going to really take up the calling and let God define to them what does that mean and set their faces more or less like a flint Brothers and sisters, I'm not saying maybe at the same sort of ratcheted disposition that Jesus had, because we have to learn. You know what I'm trying to say, brothers and sisters? We need a little bit of temperateness to our like faces or we're going to ruin everybody. But what I'm trying to say is nonetheless James and John were in journey with Jesus to Jerusalem and they needed to learn a little bit more what manner of spirit they were of but at least they weren't asleep like the Samaritans not even understanding what was going on. If you're following what I'm saying you would have to know the text that speaks of James and John with Jesus when he said his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem to fulfill the calling that God had given onto him. Jesus as you'll see with me and I trust you already know it's coming but I'm happy to state it now. Joseph is a type of Jesus. Abram is a type of Jesus. Anything that's approximating wonderful is to that extent approximating the wonderful Jesus Christ and I'm saying to you that Jesus ultimately is the son that changes everything. Jesus is the one that picks up the vision that all the patriarchs could have had as it were given so much that God gave them from the Protoevangelium all through the ministries of Samuel and Elijah and Elisha and all the prophets but it was dropped over and over and over again and it took Jesus to come and to give not something new but the word that was from the beginning and Jesus fulfilled all of the things that others should have been walking in more diligently you see what I'm saying and Jesus never slowed down now he never went faster than he needed to brothers and sisters He took his time, as it were, to make sure he was in the will of God. Something many of us need to learn, all of us need to learn along the way. That's why I say, you know, you're not Jesus walking on your way to Jerusalem. So watch out. Don't be too flinty because God might need to change you. you're going to burn everything down so let's make that clear but nonetheless brothers and sisters I'm trying to tell you this is a high and holy calling I hope you're seeing from these teachings and it will continue to come forth that there's no alternative but to fight for the kingdom of God now you can tell yourself or you can I don't know what the word is you can try to counsel yourself uh, by virtue of the climate that is around you that if everybody else is sitting down and more or less twiddling their thumbs, and that must be okay in God's eyes. You know what Jesus says to you? What is that to me? Ye, what is that to you? Follow thou me. That's what he says. He says, do you love me? Then get out of your boat. Maybe get out of your job. Do you love me? Then don't go bury your father first. Do you love me? Then don't go say, I have a new wife. Or I have some new territory. Or I got a new house. If you love me, then be about my father's business. That's what Jesus was doing from 12 years old. He was saying, how come you don't know? Doesn't everybody know? Isn't this a part of the dream and the vision that should be in our bloodstreams? Don't you know we're supposed to be about our father's business? And if you're about your father's business at some point in your life, brothers and sisters, and you're like a Moses of old, and and I don't know if you're going to see how this would harmonize with Joseph, but in time you will see what I'm saying, and I'm trying to tell you this. Yes, it's true that Joseph was a murderer. Excuse me. Pardon me for a moment. It's true that Moses was a murderer. That is a, that is a fact. He was a murderer, but he wasn't your garden variety murderer. He was a man that was activated in the interest of God's kingdom. He was a man that had a zeal for God. And there was a moment, as you see with me in Moses' uh, somewhat uncalibrated original interest, when you will recognize with me he killed the Egyptian, didn't he? Why? Because he felt that his brothers and his sisters would understand that God has something better for you. That that we're called to be the head and not the tail. We're called to set forth, you know, the glory of God. And, And he made a miscalculation. He saw this problem in front of him and he decided he would do something about it. And it was something a little too much to say the least in the flesh. Do you understand what I'm saying? And then he went from that, as you will remember, and he tried to sort out affairs between his brethren. And the amazing thing is, no one would have anything to do with it. No one would cooperate. And so the whole thing goes south for 40 years. I'm going to tell you something else about Moses and then we're going to more or less close our study for the day. I don't know if you think that's weird or not, but we're doing something a little different, perhaps in this place. You say, why? It's just us. Why not? I'm trying to stand up the church of God. I'm trying to listen to the Lord and do what He wants. we got to get some people to walk with us for an hour or so before we ask them to walk for us for two hours, three hours. You know me. I go on all night. But... Um, We'll find a nice way to wrap this up, and I hope you won't feel robbed at all. And uh, if anyone appreciates God's Word, as is presented this evening, they will appreciate that I tied them in a little bit to what we're doing here in time, whether next week or 20 years from now, they'll appreciate that that installment is available to them. And I'm going to just state this to you, and then we'll sort of finish up here in Genesis chapter 12, and we can go on to the next piece of framework for Joseph, the Lord willing, next time. I want to say something else about Moses. If you're looking, oh, I don't know, from the heights of Nebo, you know, we're going to just, for the fun of it, plug Balaam in at this point. You're looking, you're Balaam on the heights of Nebo, and you're watching what's going on with the children of Israel. And from that height... When Balaam looks down on the Jewish people, what he can honestly say is he's watching God's leader by the name of Moses go around and around in circles for 40 years. And he can go on, there's not much about this man Moses. He just goes around and around and around in circles. And he can begin, of course, to spread that kind of biographical detail about Moses. You know, what was the man Moses? What did he amount to? Well, not much. I mean, he killed killed a man and he struck a rock and he went around and around in circles for 40 years. These things are types for you, brothers and sisters. They're types for you. Because you would need to learn the lesson which is available from the life of Joseph, from the life of Moses, from the life of Paul, from the life of Isaiah, from the life of Jeremiah, from the life of Peter, and on and on and on. These lessons are to show to us, as we have talked about in previous messages called, for example, morning and momentum. We don't live these lives in isolation. We affect one another. The fact that someone is going around in circles for 40 years is not necessarily any spiritual commentary on that individual, except perhaps that he's at least loyal. Moses was loyal. Was he not? God said, step aside. Moses said, no, I won't step aside. As a type of Christ, do you understand what I'm saying? You say, why why should it be so difficult for Mary and Martha to understand what Jesus wants to do relative to the raising of Lazarus, let alone his own disciples? A much misunderstood text I'm referring to is Luke chapter 11. What I'm alluding to here, and I hope it doesn't sound too hopscotchy what I'm saying, it's one of the most tragic, misinterpreted aspects of Jesus' life. It, it is so tragic that this is misinterpreted. When, when expositors come to the conclusion that Jesus wept because either he was sad at his friend Lazarus' death or some ratchet it up a little bit and just say that he's reacting to the idea of death and the, maybe even the idea of sin, you know. Just that death can be brings tears out of Him, or that the wages of sin is death brings tears out of Him. Well, all those things certainly do affect Jesus' life. I'm not saying that they don't. John 11, what was they saying? Luke 11? Thank you. Thank you, brother. John 11, everybody. John 11. Jesus is weeping because it is becoming clear to His incarnate heart, which does not have omniscience as man. The God-man, two natures, one person. True God, true man, good Chalcedonian Christology, 450 AD. What I'm saying to you is Jesus was weeping because it becomes clear to his heart that the closest people to him have not really entered into the essence of his ministry. They don't really understand him. His heart is broken because Mary and Martha are not operating in faith. They don't understand what he's up to. They don't get it. And he's not so much weeping because as we read there in John 11, the Jews said, behold how he loved them. Yes, the Jews to get everything wrong. Go exegete John for yourself. The Jews to get everything wrong. Said once again, behold how he loved him. He wasn't so much weeping as it as related to them. He was weeping as it relates to dear, precious Mary and Martha, who he loved so deeply and wanted to see their spiritual lives mature and love God. Well, I've wandered a little bit, just a teeny, teeny bit. You let me, you know, I have to have my withdrawals, I guess you might say. Uh, I wandered just a little bit. Jesus has no one standing with him when he goes to the cross, And you can enlarge upon the story. It's absolutely to be seen, my dear brothers. That is to say, do not cheapen these biblical pictures These are the pictures that you have to see. Sooner or later, I almost went to God, we had a little more persecution because I felt like there was a little bit more attentiveness available in these last several months with the masking charade and all the other stuff and the arrest of Pastor James Coates. And I'm not saying it is going to relax, but to some extent, you know, given the change in Texas and uh, Mississippi and so on. Maybe there's going to be a little relaxing of the climate. And what will the Christian church do in response to that? Oh, oh, I hope you hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. I hope your heart realizes, oh, we needed to be listening to God at a highly attentive way all along. He's been so merciful and so patient and he's, he's very patiently prodding us and, and like shaking us. You remember, uh, brother Micah, you remember that with Peter, James, and John, he woke him up a couple of times. And then he said, okay, go sleep now. It's over. That's a fact. That's to the church, brothers and sisters. The Lord is saying, wake up. Come stand with me. We got a project here. It's always here. If it's relatively easy, then give thanks to God. Do you understand what I'm saying? If it's relatively easy to drive here from wherever you can drive without getting assaulted or pelted with tomatoes or risking either fines or arrests, then just say thanks be to God. But come here with your hearts prepared, not just to hear the word, but to do God's service and to work together as God's people to stand up God's church. So the fact that Jesus went to the cross, like Moses in the wilderness, Like Joseph separated from everything, thrown into... You know, he was promoted to a dungeon. More of that later. You'll think about that in your own time. I know what I'm saying. He was promoted to a dungeon. After being promoted to a pit, after having his glorious vision, God promoted him. Kind of like Jesus. You are my beloved son. Let me promote you into the wilderness. In any event, what I'm saying to you is it's not a commentary on Jesus' life. Dear friends... It is the standing story of the entire Bible, starting in Genesis 3. God's people are not listening. The human being doesn't listen. That's it. And we uh, were in Genesis 12. And I'm going to say that I think we're going to need to start in Genesis 12 to do proper justice to that text as it relates to this bigger story that in this new context we are engaged in and developing. And as always, while I bring our study to a conclusion, as always, dear brothers and sisters, these things are written for our admonition, which is to say there's, there's material and angles and insights. And if Peter's can say, To remind you of these things is good for you and not grievous to me. Then praise the Lord. Well, I hope the Word has ministered to your hearts today. I hope the Spirit of God is speaking to your lives. And uh, dear brothers and sisters, ultimately, the work of God is the Word. The Word is what has free course and is glorified. Ultimately, the work of God is all about the Word Do you understand that? Do you understand that you can fill auditoriums and if there's no word, there's no work of God? Or you can be Jeremiah or Ezekiel and you fill nothing. But you've got the word of God. You're doing the work of God. It's a mystery. I understand it. But eventually that word will spring forth. Eventually it will. It will not come back void. Let's agree together that we are going to hear God's word. We are going to take God's word seriously ourselves. We're going to be hearers and doers first. Thou that teachest others, do you not teach yourself first? Remember those teachings from 1 John? That's what's over the door. So may the Lord bless the word to your heart. Why don't you stand with me? We'll worship our God. We'll close as the Lord allows. And then, Lord willing, we'll have some fellowship time together.